But teens, hey teens, before you go, I just had one quick announcement. And actually this goes for everybody. So after this service, we are clearing out some chairs uh, to create room for our Grace Bible Soccer Camp. And so we need some help. Some brawny young men and Rosie the Rivener-like women who can help uh, move some chairs afterwards. So after the service, and I won't go long, I promise, we could use your help. And adults, of course, we could use your help too. Just moving some chairs, that would be really helpful. Yes? All right, so you guys know we do a lot of disciple making on Sunday nights, right? So there's kids get discipled, youth, adults are out there discipling. It is, believe it or not, it's like really, really hard to preach to people when they're scattered all over the auditorium. It's a lot easier to preach when it looks more like a home and a family. All right, so I would ask everyone to come on into these two sections and stay in front of those two posts. All right? So come on in. Let's be a family. I'm this close to starting every Sunday evening service with the whole family here. You know when we have the Lord's Supper? Uh, the auditorium is about as packed as it is on Sunday mornings. I'm this close just say we're going to start like that every week. Right? So we're almost there. You pray. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Are you okay over there? Pastor, yes. I got a new phone and I know nothing about it. And someone has offered after church to sit down with me and go over my phone and I think I lost stuff yet. I look at it. That is awesome. And I'm so glad Miss Wilson's there for support. <laughs> that dog was Mrs. Lawrence only That's a riot. you can do that. You can get away with it. You can't tell you that before. You've known me since I was five years old. You get to do whatever you want. I hope the boat works out. I'm glad you've got a new one. Are you going to go get on Facebook with that? Because I love your Facebook posts. Oh, sure. I'm just hoping Mrs. Lawrence's phone goes off in the middle of the service. There's not going to be any mystery as to whose phone it is. Oh, it's off. Okay. All right. That's great. That's hilarious. If you would, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. And I'm, what I'm about to say is part uh, jest, part truth. So you may have heard, I've never personally been in a, an environment where this has um, taken place. You may have heard of something called a trigger warning in the academic environment, in our 21st century academic environment, where um, professors uh, are, or have been, I guess in some places, encouraged to offer what are called trigger warnings for their audiences, for their classrooms, in the event that they may say something that will be offensive. And so uh, if they're talking about a sensitive subject or talking about something where they could be disagreement, uh, the professor it gives some sort of warning to say, now listen, this might be offensive, and basically you would call that a trigger warning. I'm going to give you a trigger warning for this sermon. 
I'll be honest with you, when I read this text, probably about four or five weeks ago when I found out that I was going to preach on this text, I thought, oh boy, why me? Um, and you'll understand why. It's Acts chapter 10. We're going to be reading verses 23 through 48, but I want to start off with an illustration, really to just kind of uh, move us forward here. Uh, when I was in high school, Pastor Tim led a missions trip uh, to uh, South Carolina, and we were assisting a church there in that area, and we were going to be hosting a vacation Bible school. Pastor Tim's here, so he can correct any incorrect memory that I have. That's sort of like the so, no, that you'll, you'll, you'll understand. So we were encouraged to go out and do a lot of canvassing, reaching out to a lot of neighborhoods in the area, and we did. We handed out information, flyers, and, and whatnot. And so as we approached really the end of our canvassing time, we came back to the church. Uh, we noticed right down the street from the church was an apartment complex. And the apartment complex was largely black children that were outside uh, in the parking lot playing and work. Fantastic. We've been canvassing the last two days, you know, knocking on doors and not seeing many kids. Now we see a ton of kids all at one time. Um, I mentioned their skin color because that's important. We invited them to the VBS. And the next week when we had the VBS, a large portion of the kids from the community that came were from that apartment complex, just right down the road from the church. Looking back on it, where we had been asked to hand out the flyers was in largely middle class, somewhat affluent, uh, more white areas. And after that vacation Bible school, and you correct me if I'm wrong, um, we were rebuked. At least Pastor Tim was. I didn't know it at the time. But when we came home, uh, we were rebuked by that church because it was clear who they wanted us to reach out to and it was also clear who they didn't want us to reach out to. Acts chapter 10 gives us a scenario very similar. And yet we see the power of the gospel breaking through even what humans would consider to be insurmountable barriers. It is a blessing to see what God does in Acts 10. That's not the warning. The warning is what it may demand of you. Last week, Pastor Kent preached and emphasized the blessings that came from the new dispensation, the dispensation of the church, where there were new opportunities. One of those new opportunities and the blessings of the opportunities was reaching communities of people previously unreached with the gospel. We live in a time, a dispensation, where we really don't know that to be the case. I mean, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, has always been the case since we were born until now. And frankly, it's not uncommon to, to have a zeal to go to the mission field, to the uttermost parts. In fact, it's the <laughs> coincidence that the Fairchilds are here. Going literally to the other end of the planet. What if the other end of the planet comes here? What if it comes next door? Using another illustration. Um, and again, I'm, I'm being very specific about what I say because of how I have grown. In 2011, uh, my wife and I put our home up for sale. We purchased the house in 2001. It was a little two-bedroom ranch. 
uh, there in Painesville City. If you know where Lake East Hospital is, we live right around the corner from, well, where Lake East Hospital used to be. And um, when we moved there, it was a wonderful home. Still, it was a wonderful home. Uh, two bedrooms. Uh, we had a child on the way, and we had two children already, and so we were um, really just looking to, to buy a new home. We, we were growing out of our space. And so there was one Sunday morning in particular, we had the house on the market for probably four months or so. And um, in the time that we had lived in our, our street, we had gone from a neighborhood of five to six homes, all privately owned, to four of the six homes becoming rental properties and two of the homes being owned, mine being one of them and the neighbor across the street. The neighbor next door to me uh, was a Hispanic couple that moved there, spoke very little English, but was very, very friendly, and we became good friends with them. And they ended up moving. They had a child and, and moved. Well, we came home from church one day, and we were unable to actually drive up our, our, our street, our driveway, because of a large U-Haul, a large U-Haul where someone was moving in next door. And in the street were 20 to 25 people, and they were black. And they were probably from the age of about 18 to 40. Most of them were men. We had to park our car at the end of the street and walk down to our house. Now, if I would have said, and I'm saying this to myself as well, if I would have said that there were roughly 20 to 25, 18 to 40 white individuals, would that make any difference? Did it make any difference in my mind when all of a sudden I have a pretty large ethnic group Different than me, moving in next door? Did I, I think it's time to move. These are tough questions, and I say they're tough questions because this is where we are in, if I could put it this way, our cultural moment. Where we live in a time where unfortunately, talking about things like this inflame emotions where people end up yelling at each other, yelling instead of talking, instead of looking at the Scripture, instead of really working out what it is that the Bible has to say. I say this because God, when He calls us to share the Gospel and to bring the Gospel to others, He calls us out of comfort zones. In fact, sharing the Gospel has never been a matter of finding the most comfortable place. And so, here in the city of Mentor, the last, uh, I believe it was census that was taken, roughly 2013, we are 94% white and over 80% Christian. What if that changes? What if when we, Lord willing, build our new church down the road, we build up that area, that that area all of a sudden declines? Or maybe it increases. Does that change? I mean, when I say increase, increase from a socioeconomic standpoint. Does any of that really change how we administer the gospel? I would say not at all. Not at all. God has called us where we are, but has not called us to simply rub shoulders with people that we're comfortable with. I know Pastor Tim, speaking of discipleship, talks about as we rub shoulders with people in life. Well, God doesn't call us to be selective. Nor does God call us to neglect 
those who he continues to bring into our lives. And that's really what I wanted to, to leave with today. God's heart in this dispensation is that the gospel cross every cultural, every ethnic barrier, and that the gospel is reached in every corner of the planet. So too, Christians must reflect God's heart by sharing the gospel with every nation and every ethnicity. We must not just believe that in theory, but we must be at the forefront of our culture and society in doing this individually. So, let's look at Acts chapter, 20, or Acts chapter 10. Backstory, you have Peter living in Joppa. He's living at a house, Simon the Tanner. Tanner working with um, dead animals, something that Jews would have considered to be very much unclean, yet Simon was living with them. Simon was a very hospitable man. Well, in chapter 10, verse 1, you have Cornelius, a Gentile, receiving a vision from the Lord, saying, go visit Peter. Listen to him, what he has to say. And so, he goes and visits Peter. Peter simultaneously has this vision of this sheet coming from the sky with all of these animals, clean and unclean from Jewish dietary laws, and hearing a voice telling him to take these and eat these. And we see in chapter 10, God, I'm sorry, we see Peter actually rebuking the voice from heaven. Verse 14, by no means, Lord, he knows who's speaking, for I've never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Now, what we're going to see here at the end of chapter 10 is that God isn't just talking about animals and sheets. He's talking about people. People not far from where they are. In fact, people about 35 to 40, 40 miles down the road that were about to come to him and ask him about this Jesus. So let's pick up here in verse 23. These men come to him. Peter invites them in and gives them lodging. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day, he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. And he talked with him. And as he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's what I came without even raising any objection when I was sent. So I ask, for what reason have you sent for me? Cornelius, the Gentile, said, Four days ago to this hour I was praying in my house during the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So this first section, what we see here is that Peter's method, and really our method of evangelism, as we go forward carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to every nation, here we see it literally in Judea and Samaria. The method of evangelism is really a combination of your obedience and God's direction. Okay? That's what we see here from this first section. That your method of evangelism really is a combination of your obedience and God's direction. 
Peter, first of all, obeyed the commandments of the Lord. He received this vision. He was told these men are going to come. So Peter obeyed. He followed the instruction. He followed these Gentiles into their home. Now you have to understand the cultural and racial norms that are being violated during this time. And that's much of the reason why I started off the sermon the way that I did. Because I think it brings in full relief just the nature of what Peter was doing. That he was entering into an environment that, from a religious standpoint, was impure and unclean. Not just a racial standpoint, but from a religious standpoint. To go and to associate with him. We see that in verse uh, 28. You yourselves know, Peter says, how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. Okay? That doesn't mean that somehow Jews were inherently racist. What it does mean, though, is that there was a program given to them that Jesus had come, and He had come as King of the Jews, and He had come with a message that was to begin in Jerusalem. And then this program eventually included the Gentiles. And so Peter now was recognizing to them It's been unlawful up to this point for me to even associate with you. Now I'm in your home. But Peter was obeying the commandments of the Lord. Now remember, evangelism is more than just the obedience to God's commands. It's also seeing God's direction. The Lord directed Cornelius to Peter, as we talked about here in Acts chapter 10, verse 1, where Cornelius relayed the vision that he had received. We see that in verse 30. In fact, I don't think Luke is trying to be redundant here. I don't think he's trying to, you know, I don't think he had a lapse in judgment or lapse in memory that that somehow he wrote this a second time and didn't realize he wrote it again. In fact, when you see the accounts of this story, both in Acts, at the end of Acts 9, Acts 10, and Acts 11, a lot of the details are stated multiple times. The story of of Cornelius' vision, the story of Peter's vision, The account of what's happening here, going in and seeing these Gentiles converted. This was told twice, sometimes three times. Why? Because it was so different to what they were accustomed to. But God was directing all the way. God was bringing them all the way. Peter was on their turf, but they knew it and they welcomed it. God was doing a work in their hearts so that they were eager to hear what this Jew had to say. And so from this, we see evangelism really is a two-way street. It is God sending us into the world and us obeying that, but also drawing those to whom would receive Him. And we really have to understand this when we are obeying in evangelism because a lot of times we can place a lot of emphasis on one at the expense of the other. Meaning that when we become frustrated in our evangelism, that we feel like, I'm sharing the gospel, I'm sharing the gospel, and I don't see any fruit. Well, remember, God is drawing those to whom would receive or those to who He would have here at that point in time. We don't know God's plan, but what God does want is our obedience. And so for us to go and to obey should bring about joy, even if we don't see immediate fruit. So this morning, one of the baptisms, actually both of the baptisms that took place, those were individuals that 
heard the gospel just a handful of times. And when the people sat down with him and talked with him, they immediately received the gospel. I mean, like that. And the change was like that. Can I tell you, I wish it were that simple. For whatever reason, you know, you have Pam and Ida receiving Christ and, and God caused them to get it. Like immediately, God changed it. But there are others where, you know, full disclosure, I feel like I have to turn the phrase 15 different ways. You know, you have to say something in, in, in a, a particular way. So hopefully they'll understand. And that hard-heartedness and that stubbornness, and it's like, ah, God is bringing those to whom he would have be saved to us. And we can't forget that. Matthew 28, 19, go into all the world, but John 15, verse 16, remember what Jesus said to his disciples. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So really the question I ask you is, are you obeying? Are you doing your part in evangelism? Was there anything comfortable about what Peter was doing? And how much out of his element would Peter have been? from a cultural, from a racial, from an ethnic standpoint? And why should we think that being a witness for Christ really is any different now? The second question I'd like to ask you is, who has God brought to you to share the gospel with? And this really is the comfort that we have in our anxiousness, that God is drawing people to himself. From a human standpoint, there's really no reason why our message should be welcomed. I mean, when we look at what Peter tells these Gentiles, what they're eager to hear, you know, I don't know that this would have been the script that, that we would have prescribed Peter to use. Because really, well, I don't want to get ahead of myself. It, it just, it doesn't seem like it relates well, but it relates completely well. What people has God repeatedly brought in your path that you have been overlooking, or perhaps looking past. Who is that person that perhaps lives next door? Who is that individual that you see on a regular basis that frankly, we'd rather look past? Or maybe we just find that it's easier to be busy when we see that individual, or when we're around them. Who's the person that honestly maybe we just don't want to share the gospel with? The neighbor that honestly will not keep their yard clean. The people that when you go and you see them at the Y on a regular basis, just don't speak your language. Who is it that God is bringing into your path that you would rather just kind of wish away as opposed to I see them all the time and there's this little pebble in my shoe it feels it's not a literal pebble but it, it's like when I'm there I'm stepping on it and it's not comfortable and I know I want to do something but man I can find every excuse not to say something I don't know what to say I don't know what to do I don't know if it's going to relate don't you understand my property value is going down they don't care about that. Who is God bringing into your life? I share that initial illustration of the moving van in my street to my shame. Because I wish my first response, I wish my first response was, 
Yes! 20 more souls I can share the Gospel with. But I got to know Ebony and I got to know Jameer. Ebony, the single mom, and Jameer, his son, who lives right next to us, who Jameer, I never had a son, but hey, I had Jameer, we could play catch. We got to know each other. He came to Grace Bible Day Camp. Got to share the Gospel with Ebony. Got to have a great relationship with her. Praise the Lord. I don't say that as an attaboy. I say that as about time. So first of all, our evangelistic method is a combination of our obedience and God's direction. Second of all, our evangelistic message is the same message for all people. Our evangelistic message is the same message for all people. Let's look here at verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears Him and does what is right is welcome to Him. There it is. That's the reality of it. Verse 36, The word which He sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed Him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with Him. We are witnesses of all the things He did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put Him to death by hanging Him on a cross. God raised Him up on the third day and granted that He became visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. And, at, and He ordered for us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of Him all the prophets bear witness that through His name everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? You said early in your sermon that this may not have been like the sermon that you would have prescribed. The reason why I say that is because this is a very Jewish sermon. Peter is speaking very much from a Jewish standpoint. But he's speaking to Gentiles. It's like, Peter, don't you understand who your audience is? I mean, they kind of teach that in Homiletics 101. You know, understand who the audience is. Well, I think he does. By starting off, first of all, by saying in verse 34, I most, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Peter's a learner. Peter walks into a room and finds a whole lot more people than he was anticipating. And they're eager to hear what he has to say. And he says, I now get it. That in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. We see this in the Old Testament as well. We see this in Deuteronomy. We see this in Job. Where those who fear God, regardless of nationality, will be accepted by Him. But Peter sees it and learns it from experience. But then look at what he says. The word which he sent to whom? The sons of Israel. Preaching peace through Jesus Christ. You say, well, this is a Jewish message. Yeah, it is a Jewish message. First of all, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, and then verse 37, the geography of the ministry, know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting in Galilee, the baptism with John proclaimed. 
We see this, verse 39, we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. We see this also in verse 41, that God raised him up on the third day and granted he become visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, us. And we also see this in verse 43, of him all the prophets, the prophets, i.e., prophets of Israel. This is a Jewish message. Because Jesus is a Jew. But clearly, these Gentiles were aware of it. They were aware of what had gone on. They knew what Jesus had done. So, in a sense, yes, it's Jewish, but can I tell you, it's the Gospel. And let me show you how it's the Gospel. First of all, we see Jesus as Lord. Explicitly stated in verse 36, the word which He sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, and then in my Bible it has parentheses. He is Lord of all. That's the starting point. Jesus is Lord. Regardless of tribe, tongue, nation, Jesus is Lord of all. It's a statement of authority. And that's really the most important thing to start off with, a statement of authority. You are not your own authority. God is. In God's Son, Jesus. It's a statement of Jesus as authority. But then second of all, it's a statement of their sinfulness. That because of man's sin, that they needed, or I'm sorry, that they were guilty. Jesus, verse 38, Nazareth, how he anointed him with the Holy Spirit. God anointed him. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all these things. He did both in the Jews, uh, land of the Jews in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. But look down in verse 43. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now the converse of that would be, those who don't believe in him do not receive forgiveness of sins. So this is a statement not only of their guilt, that they stood guilty before God, but this was also a statement of hope. That through Jesus Christ comes forgiveness of sins. So here's what we have. We have a message that's universal. Jesus is Lord. You're a sinner. And stand guilty before Him. Yet, He offers forgiveness. The end. That's the message. How does that not translate to Gentiles? Jesus is Lord. They stand guilty before Him. Now, Believe in Him and be forgiven. That's the message. Regardless who your neighbor is, who your co-worker is, what their socioeconomic level is, what city or county you live in, what school district you live in, that is a universal message that translates. It's the Gospel. The message is the same for all people. And how they respond, we can't control that. But we see how these individuals respond. Look at what God does. Verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed. Peter had eyewitnesses that came with him. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting in God. And by the way, that doesn't happen without salvation. The Holy Spirit doesn't come on an individual unless they are truly born again. And Peter answered, verse 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. 
Now, they didn't pray for the Holy Spirit to come on this way. They didn't pray for the speaking of tongues. They didn't invite the Spirit. The Spirit just came. And Pastor Kent spoke on this quite a bit last week, so I won't rehash. Or, or, or um, You're welcome to go re- uh, listen to the audio of that. But that was something unique to this point in time. We don't see that happening here, but what we do know is that the Spirit indwells all believers. And that the Spirit was indwelling these believers. And as believers, they were going to identify with the body of believers by baptism. So, it's the same message, same response, same obedience. Two completely different ethnic groups. Yet, one Savior that unifies them. And then thirdly, said first, your method, your evangelistic method is a combination of your obedience and God's direction. Your evangelistic message is the same message for all people. And then finally, your evangelistic ministry is disciple-making. Your evangelistic ministry is disciple-making, which requires post-salvation relationships. Your evangelistic ministry is disciple-making, which requires post-salvation relationships. Look at verse 48. I don't think this is just kind of an add-on. I really think this is important. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So it wasn't as if Peter and and the other six guys that went with them shared the gospel, they get saved, and wow, look what God did. We're heading back home. Where were they? They were in a Gentile house, surrounded by Gentiles, completely out of their element, and happy to stay with their brothers and sisters in Christ. Staying in Simon's house and staying, remember, Peter's staying in Simon's house, Acts 9, and staying with them several more days is significant. Now, I don't expect you to remember this, but way back when in Acts chapter 2, we we talked about when the church was born. And we talked about, you know, what happened in the early church and how, matter of fact, just let's let's just look back. Acts chapter 2, rather than me trying to remember it really, really well. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. Acts 2, 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord kept it going. All the way to Caesarea and Joppa. Gentile towns. Why wouldn't we expect anything different? Except in Acts 2, these are Jews. So they had a lot in common. But this same thing is happening now in Acts 10 with Jews and Gentiles. Alright. So let me put it this way. I don't want to be snarky. Okay? It's one thing to invite a family to church and want to see them saved. It's another thing for your kids and their kids to be in the nursery together. It's one thing to go 
put door hangers on doors. It's one thing to, to minister at a, a Grace Bible Day camp. It is quite another thing to sit down on couches that maybe have cat scratches on them and Kool-Aid stains in the carpet and non-gluten-free crackers that they're serving to you. Now again, I don't mean to be snarky, but we, if we're not careful, can make socioeconomic gods out of good things. We can make things like cleanliness and safety, and I'm not talking about being reckless here, but we can make things like cleanliness and safety good reasons for not taking advantage of gospel opportunities. Post-salvation relationships, in my experience, are harder than pre-salvation witnessing opportunities. Because, you know, the sensationalism wears off. They get saved and now it's, now it's growth. Now it's the mess. I mean, you have spiritual newborns with 30 diapers that need changed. And there you are. It's, that's the reality of it. And you know what? What do you have to look forward to this side of heaven? We have heaven. We have Christ-likeness. We have steps of obedience. And those are all wonderful things. And I'm certainly not minimizing those things because, honestly, those things can keep you going for months on end. The zeal and the excitement of when a person gets or they send you a text and, you know what, I went to my Bible. Da, da. But you know what? It comes with the messes. It comes with the inconveniencing of you. It comes with the necessary adjustment of your life and the inconveniencing of you to really reach these people and not just, pardon my frankness, not just spiritually deliver a newborn Christian baby and then leave it on the curb expecting someone else to take it from there or plopping them in a chair and just expecting them to learn by spiritual osmosis in a, in a worship service. No, it's the relationship. It's the messy part. But I think we see that here. And I also think that we see joy in the whole process as well. You know, I shared at the beginning uh, an example of a mission trip that we took that that may not have the fondest of memories. Um, I want to share two examples, one from Scripture, one from outside of Scripture. Actually, three examples, um, two from outside Scripture, one in Scripture, that, that juxtapose that thing. Could you turn to Colossians chapter 3? Colossians chapter 3. Uh, here, the context, Paul is talking to the church at Colossae. He's talking to believers. This is the second portion of his letter, so he's laid a theological framework of, of Christ being uh, uh, sufficient for all, that, that Christ is supreme. Um, and so in verse 9, the application of, of those realities do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of one who created him. Okay? So we're talking about believers here who are becoming what they are. They are in Christ, but they're becoming like Christ, even though they're in Christ. It's progressive sanctification. 
And as they're growing, look at what takes place. A renewal, verse 11, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So there's a relational reality that stems forth from being in Christ. Especially within the body of Christ. To where, and if you were to do a word study on verse 11, there's some fascinating people groups in there. Like what in the world is a Scythian? You know what a Scythian is? It's kind of like an ancient ISIS member. And that's what a Scythian was. Just terribly, terribly brutal people. What's a barbarian? That's kind of like a hilljack, you know, kind of like a redneck, kind of someone who, you know, is not well-educated, can't speak the language, kind of lives out in the boondocks, might have indoor plumbing, those type of things. How is it that those individuals can come together and enjoy verses 12 through 14? They're in Christ. They're in Christ. Two other examples. I praise God that uh, that we are afforded opportunities to partner with other ministries. The past two weeks, um, two weeks ago, Pastor Steve and I led a group down to uh, Houston, Texas, to Arise Baptist Church. And um, the church where it's situated, it's in Houston. And Houston is a really unique area where they literally have no zoning laws. So where the church was, um, you know, when we pulled in the street, uh, I think the words that some in our group used were sketchy. Um, we had an apartment complex next to us with razor wire, uh, but one street over was million-dollar homes. It was a really amazing thing where you could, I, I think around here, sometimes we have the, the lines of demarcation clearly defined between areas that perhaps aren't as well off and others that are. There, it's just not the case. And so as we were handing out flyers, we were doing a lot of canvassing, you know, we had maps, and we're from out of town, so we don't know where we're going. So we go to some places, and honestly, you're on Millionaire's Row. And then you're going just across the street, and, and it's, it's different. You go from, from, from an area that, in our flesh, we might feel just more comfortable. Maybe it's a little more exciting to go check out these really cool houses and go in these neighborhoods. But then, what about these neighborhoods? And what if the people don't look like you? And talking to Pastor Cover, he said, you know how much of a blessing it is? He said, in our, in our parking lot, you know, there's one Sunday that came out, and their church is only a year old or so. He's like, in the church, in the parking lot, we have a Maserati, a Ferrari, uh, a Pinto, and then a guy living out of his bike. I mean, the socioeconomic differences that, that are, take place just within the two-mile area. But that's his Jerusalem. What should he do? Have us target the wealthy areas? Should we? No, that's his Jerusalem. Souls are souls. I praise God that we see this playing out in our church as well. I'm sharing a message here not as a rebuke to us, for anything that we have. 
And I really want to be careful with what I'm about to say because we live in a day and age where you just have to be careful and you speak lovingly. There are a lot of things that we could do from a corporate standpoint as a church that we could champion around. There are a lot of societal ills that we could really wave a banner for and, and, and really try to make a dent in our society. Um, what have we been called to do as a church? What is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to souls that God brings us into contact with as we go out and as he draws. And you know what you'll find? A lot of the societal ills that we experience, especially from a racial and ethnic socioeconomic standpoint, we confront person to person. We have opportunities on an individual basis to confront those things. Can I tell you just in the past month, I could count five different times that our staff has. Just here in Menor, Ohio, that's 94% white and over 80% Christian. I say that with love in my heart because a lot of times we kind of get a bad rap for not having social good or social justice being our banner. I'll tell you, social good and social justice will come when souls trust in Christ. And we carry the gospel and we cultivate relationships along the way. We know things are going to get worse and when Christ comes as King, He's going to take care of all of it. To be sure. But we have to make sure we're about the main thing. And that when we're about the main thing, we're not just chalking things up to political motives or left-wing politics or whatever. The solution isn't for folks to just speak English, get a green card, get a job, and stop using welfare that's taking my tax dollars. That's got to not be part of our vernacular or part of our social media postings. That's got to stop from Christians. Because as Pastor Tim shared this morning, we carry joy. We have a joy. We have a gospel that unites people, that brings them together, that from the world standpoint, we would think, there's no way. I pray that to be the case from a church standpoint, but, but specifically, I pray that to be true of each one of us. I'm not calling us for a collective sense of guilt, just calling to look at the passage and, and, and to see how gospel breaks these barriers and that when we are obedient, we will see every ethnicity, every culture reached with the gospel. And God honored in that way. And in doing so, we're going to have some really neat opportunities to start up some conversations with our unbelieving friends about just how much racial reconciliation is going on. And just how much socioeconomic assistance is going on. And just how many relationships are cultivated. Isn't that what we want? It seems to be what the text says. And praise God, we have someone like Peter who admits... I now understand. I now understand. This is what God has called us to do. It's not comfortable, but praise God He's called us to do it. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. This is a tough message, and I, of all people, feel the least qualified to speak. But God, we thank you that we have the promise that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, and that there will be a time where every tribe, tongue, and nation will come and will worship you. Lord, we live right now in a world that when we turn on our televisions, when we turn on our computers, we see division of an ugly kind. And sometimes we see it in the name of Christ. Lord God, may, not be, may that not be the case of us. Lord, I pray for each individual in this room and each individual that calls Grace Church of Mentor that they would be wise with their words, that they would see souls instead of things that will pass away, or that they would not hold on tightly to rights or the things of this earth, but Lord, that they would be zealous to show the gospel and to speak the gospel. Lord, take this passage, take your word and change us. May we skillfully use your word so that we might see your church built. In Jesus' name, amen.